all of Paul's letters in a general sense, he always begins with doctrine, and then he moves on to duty, from wealth to walk. He, he goes from that place of understanding principles about your salvation and knowing what it means to be a child of God to actually applying them. He always takes us from that place of being hearers of the word to being doers of the word. And so as we transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we finished up, in essence, the doctrinal section. And now he moves to the application. And it's so important for us to remember that to simply read the word of God without rightly interpreting it, which I said on Wednesday night, without observing what the text actually says and then applying it, leaves us wanting. There are a lot of people with biblical knowledge that are not saved. There are a lot of people who read their Bibles faithfully that do not have a relationship with the true and the living God. And really the difference is you can know the truth and not do the truth, not follow the truth. You can be a hearer, but not a doer. And so Paul now moves on uh, from doctrine, our riches to our responsibilities is another way, from that wealth to the walk. And he's going to bring out some points in the remainder of this wonderful book that I think are important. It's going to take us a while to finish this book because there's so much wealth that is now applied. And we're going to spend some time doing that. And I want you to prepare your hearts for that, because a lot of times people like to hear the love part, like last week. Amen? I had so many people go, oh, it's just I felt so loved, and it was just wonderful. And as you were speaking, I was just going, like, I felt so accepted. But remember that you're accepted as the beloved. And to be one of the beloved puts you in the classification of needing to be what Scripture declares a Christian is. We act a certain way. We live a certain way. We, we are then children of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not children of the world, or worse yet, children of the devil, who just simply have some fire insurance so that you won't go to hell later. This is the part that we get to talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is immensely important that you keep those two things together, Savior and Lord. Because you can't claim one without the other. He can't be your Lord unless he's your Savior. But I would say to you, if he is your Savior, then he also, by necessity, must be your Lord. You've got to have both. And that's why when people come to me and say, well, I don't believe in church. I say, well, you have a problem with what Scripture says, not what Jeff says. Well, I don't believe you have to live a certain way because I'm free in grace and God loves me. You probably have met people who've said something similar to you. You know, I don't really need to live that way because God's grace is so powerful and His love is so amazing that I can do whatever I want. I hate to tell you this, but Scripture does not agree with you. So if that's you and you think you can live any way you want, you're going to find out that that's not true. You're going to find out that there are 
very definite defining factors to the children of God. You see, good doctrine, we all love, we're saved by grace and through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, amen? We all love, God is love. But sometimes that whole, do you not know that such were some of you? And then it lists a whole long laundry list of things that we're not supposed to be anymore. And you look at it and go, well, I like being those things. Scripture says that if you're one of God's kids, it leads to a changed life. Doesn't mean everything changes at once. And it doesn't mean you're saved because things change. It means that if you are a child of God's grace, that your life should be marked by the things that indicate that you are a child of God. And if you're not marked by those changes, then you're supposed to ask yourself the question, what am I missing? Because here it says I'm supposed to live and look like this, and yet I don't. Why is that? It's not to heap condemnation. It's to put a sense of realization on us. You were bought and paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We just celebrated communion. It was very expensive to buy you back. Same for me. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Amen? Very plain statement. So if there's only one way, and then that one way declares that you ought to live your life in a certain way, how much do you think you need to live in that one way, that walk? That's the focus as we move forward. And it says here in verse 1, and again we'll read it quickly, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You were paid for with the blood of Christ. How worthy should you be walking? How worthy should the church be walking? What should our walks look like if you were paid for, I was paid for, we were bought back from the bondage of sin and death by the blood of the only begotten Son of God the Father? Think about it. With all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you remember what Paul said about being unequally yoked? He said, be ye not unequally yoked with a believer and an unbeliever. You know why he said that? Because that's false unity. He's talking about real unity here. That is the unity of the Spirit. He's not talking about us all looking the same. That's uniformity. That's not unity. You get the difference? Uniformity is what Hitler had with the kids in Nazi Germany. They all wore the same uniform. They're nice little brown shirts. They came out. They did the same walk. They all did the same salute. That's not what's being talked about here. The unity of the body of Christ allows for our absolute uniqueness to be used for one purpose and one purpose alone. The glory of God. That's what the church is for, to glorify God. It's not to glorify me. It's not to glorify us as a church. It's to glorify God. It's not to glorify Calvary Chapel. It's to glorify God. 
with all that we are, everything that we do. And so in these last three chapters, we're going to see a, several things in very, very vivid technicolor, that unity that we should have, the purity that we should have in our hearts, the harmony that we should have together, and finally, and most wonderfully, the victory that we all share in Christ. Amen? You, you see, what you learn, you're supposed to live. And I'm going to keep reminding you of, you of this throughout the next few weeks. What you learn, you're supposed to live. It's supposed to translate into action. Let me help you understand this. I believe that most of you in this room are not flat earthers. You believe in the basic laws of physics, very specifically the law of gravity. Amen? Does anybody in here believe you're exempt from gravity? Good. Looking at you, I can tell you're all gravitationally attached to this earth, so I think you all have this picture well in hand. You believe in the law of gravity. That is the reason every morning you don't go out to that wonderful pine tree that we're blessed with here, climb up 80 feet, and jump out believing you can fly. Why? You'll drop like a rock and splat on the ground. You believe in the law of physics, specifically that portion which says that if you... Do not apply force to something. It will continue in motion until it's acted upon. Well, you're being acted upon by the gravitational pull of this planet. It pulls you back down to this earth. So you believe in the laws of physics. Can I say to you that the laws that you're reading in your Bible are spiritual laws and they are as exacting as the laws of physics except in the spiritual realm? So whether you like what they say or not, because, see, I'd like to be able to go up that tree and jump out and soar like an eagle. I don't know about you guys. That's something I've always wanted to do. When I get to heaven, I'm going to do it. So I'm waiting. But I would love to be able to do that, kind of flex my arms, and all of a sudden, I don't know whether wings pop out or whatever, but now I've got lift. You see, I'd like to be able to do that. But me liking that to happen does not make the law of gravity immune. Amen? So if I jump, I'm going to fall, I'm going to splat. Why do I tell you this? Because what your Bible says is truth. And because it's truth, you are obligated to keep it. And just because you don't like what it says... Just because you'd like it to be different, just because you would hope, because it sounds kinder for it to be another way, it's still true. So you better act on it. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself jumping from the tree of alcohol, or the tree of a relationship, or the tree of stealing, or the tree of, and just go on and on and on and on and on, and talk about what Scripture says, hey, you're a child of God, you shouldn't be doing this. Because at the end of that jump into alcohol is a plunge to drunkenness, which will cause you to splat. At the end of the drugs, the splat. At the end of homosexual behavior, the splat. At the end of fornication, the splat. You get the picture. You see, just because we don't like what it says doesn't mean it's not true. It is a spiritual law, and you were bought out of the world and into Christ, so you're going to find that God now has some things he would like you to do in a way you would like, he would like you to behave. And it's not up to us to go, well, I don't want to be unbitter. I like being bitter. Matter of fact, I'm the world's greatest hater. 
I have the gift of discouragement constantly. I'm able to discourage even the most encouraging person. I love being unloving. It just brings me so much joy. You know, I have met people that like being unloving. Matter of fact, I would say they love being unloving. It's like they want to push your buttons and twist everything to their advantage. Your Bible says you're not supposed to be like that. So if you are, if you're bitter and hateful and spiteful and unforgiving, you kind of need to figure out where that lordship is ending and do something to kind of fill in the gap spiritually. I've had people come to me and say, don't talk to me about doctrine. I just want to live my Christian life. You know, I love everybody. Your Bible says that's not right. You're to love everybody as Christ loves. And he loves us enough to correct us. We just read it in Proverbs. says the same thing in the New Testament. You've been bought and paid for with a price. It does make a difference what you believe, because what you believe determines how you behave. Amen? You see, what I believe determines whether I go up in the tree and jump out or not. What I believe spiritually determines how I act. You see, if I believe bitterness is okay, then I live in bitterness. And it's not okay. It is as rottenness to your bones. It actually destroys you, is what Scripture says. Why am I telling you all this? Because the closer we walk to those things that Christ has declared by his word that we ought to be as children of God, the more blessed we are. I don't say it. The Bible doesn't say it to put a burden on you. That was what the law did. The law placed a burden on people. The new covenant sets us free. But we've been set free to live as God's kids, not as the world lives. We're in it, not of it. Very different thing. We're to live for his glory. Basically, what the Lord says to us is, I've already blessed you. Those first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, we are blessed. Amen? We have tremendous riches in Christ. Jesus made it very clear. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. Completely, totally free. But just because you're free doesn't mean you're free to do what the old man used to do. You're not free to live like that anymore. You're free to change. And in the change, be blessed. I'm sure you all know people that carry around immense amounts of unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, hate, contentiousness, vanity. You hear what I'm saying? You see, it's easy to pick on things like, a homosexual lifestyle. But let's be fair. Let's be fair with our condemnation. Let's be equitable and just with decrying the things that God decries. He wants us to be forgivers because he forgave us. He wants us to be merciful because we've received mercy. You understand what I'm saying? It transforms your life. You don't just simply find out what's wrong with everybody else because there's so much that we can work on ourselves that you can fully implement the command that Jesus has right after he's talking about judgment. He says, judge not, lest you in your same manner with which you judge others are judged yourself. You see, when I turn my eyes to me, there's plenty to work on. Amen? 
You ever notice that? It's a great equalizer. I may not struggle with the things that you struggle with, and you may not struggle with the things that I struggle with. But the fact of the matter is, we all need to do a better job at applying what we have learned and living what we love. You see, he's going to talk now really about what grace should do in our lives. We have it. It's a gift. It's free. But grace works. Grace causes us to be like he is. And in essence, God is building his body, his temple, his church, his bride. Yeah, you get what I'm saying? We're we're to be what he wants, not what we want. And that's why the world is so messed up today. When you look at the church in the world, the church is trying to please the world and not please God. The church is is adapting to the culture instead of trying to affect the culture for Christ. We're wandering around going, well, how much we need to be more relevant. No, we need to be more like Jesus. Amen? That's the truth. If the church were simply like Jesus, I I think we'd we'd win. The reason we're losing is the church is not being like Jesus. And that means a lot of things. That doesn't just mean ultra-loving. It means that supremely, of course. That's what we saw last week. But it also means that that ultra-loving, compassion, tenderness, gentleness, meekness, purchased us for a reason, for a price, and for work to go along with the things that we have inherited from Jesus. I want to remind you that unity, which is what he's really going to begin with here, comes from within. It doesn't come from without. It doesn't come by rules. You see, the law was a set of external rules. Yeah? Everybody get that? When you look at the laws, here's this big, long laundry list of things that you need to do and things that you need to be. That's not how grace works. Grace is an internal thing that changes the very nature of the person who's received it so that we now go, oh, I now have the DNA of Christ instead of the DNA of the world. And so those things which are imprinted into me spiritually have changed. They've transformed. That's why Christians are miserable in sin. You ever notice that? You ever have somebody in your life, or maybe you've been there, and you you know you know what God's word says, but you don't want to do it because you like the sin. Jesus said, because men don't walk in it because they love the darkness more than they love the light. You see, when you begin to do that, you're absolutely miserable. Here's why: because inside you've received Christ, and you're not walking as a Christian. You're walking contrary to your new nature, so you're all messed up. You have conflict constantly. Everything bothers you. You, you don't have anything settled in your life. You don't know whether you're foot or horseback. You're just wandering through the world going, oh, I don't know. He wants you to know. He doesn't want us to simply look the same. He wants us to be the same. And that doesn't mean that we all look alike. That means that we all have the character and the nature of Christ. Notice some things here that we ought to have. Lowliness or humility. These are just simply spiritual graces. Is that not exactly the opposite of the way the world functions? Lowliness and humility? No, it's supposed to be narcissism and and boisterousness. Yeah? Think about it. Think about how different these things are than the world. The world says, promote yourself. You know, you don't even have to take tests anymore. You you, You just go out and do your own thing, and then you lie about it, and you'll get ahead. 
It says humility. It says lowliness. It means that we put others first. It's exactly the opposite of what the world says. You've got to grab and scratch and claw for absolutely everything, and if you knock a few people down in the process, that's okay because you'll get ahead. That's not from Jesus. It doesn't mean that we aren't excellent, by the way. It doesn't mean that we don't try really, really hard to be the absolute very best we can be at whatever we're doing. That also is a truth, but it's not a competing truth. It's a complementary truth. You see, we want to be excellent in Christ, but not at the expense of others. Get the picture? You can still be excellent. You just do it a different way than the world does. Very important. That's why we look at others first and less highly at ourselves. The second thing here is meekness. And meekness, as I've said before, is just simply power under control. Jesus was God on Calvary's cross, amen? And because he was God, what was he limited to do? Nothing. He could have done anything. He was fully God. He could have called down legion of angels. He could have struck the entire Roman world dead. He could have done anything he wanted to do. He showed us what real meekness is about. He said, in meekness, in taking that power and subjecting it to the will of God, in his case, God the Father. He said, Father, you sent me to this world for this exact purpose. If it's your will to change it, then change it. Remember his prayer? If there be any way for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. But because there wasn't, there was no way to save you, no way to save me, no way to save people without Jesus dying. Because of that, he took all of his power as God and put it completely under control. Make no mistake, one day Jesus is going to cram Satan's head into a big hole in the ground, okay? He's going to be cast into hell where he belongs. He could do it right now. He's not lacking power. That power is simply under control. That's meekness. People have a tough time keeping power under control. We take power and use it, don't we? I know I have. Be careful. A third thing, and it's the one probably in this list that I personally detest the most, long-suffering. I'm not particularly fond of suffering in general, and I really don't like to do it for a long time. Think about it. And yet, with God, it's been from the very moment that man took his first breath on this planet. He has been suffering long. And by the way, being kind while doing it, and merciful while doing it, and loving while doing it. Wouldn't have been how any of us would have probably handled the entire universe. We'd have been sitting in heaven, ah, those knuckleheads, I'll make two more. I can't believe Adam and Eve did that, I'll just start over. What I would have done. You guys probably would have done the same thing. Because why? You don't like to suffer. I want everything to be wonderful. I just read an article yesterday, this is crazy. You know what's happening to our kids? There's a brand spanking new report out by the American Medical Association that says the reason we're seeing so many allergies in kids is because our houses are too clean. Moms, you're free. We're we're not exposing people to real life anymore. We don't like to have anything that's out of place. No, anything. 
We get out a little checklist. And And I'm not encouraging you to be poor stewards of the things that God's given you. But what I am saying is, we don't like to suffer. We don't like to pick up someone else's sock. God forbid that there be a tea glass on the table. And yes, those are both examples from me. I am a neat freak. I admit it. It's a sickness I have. And I'm being delivered day by day by the grace of God. But it's one of those things I don't suffer long with. It's like, those are your clothes. You pick them up. And then I pick them up begrudgingly. Anybody else do that? You're loving begrudgingly? I'm going to, okay, I'll do it. That's not Jesus. Jesus walks over because he loves it, loves us, and he picks that up and he takes care of it. And that is metaphorically speaking of virtually everything in your life where you can blow it. Well, I can't believe Jeff did that. Back to hell with him. I was okay until he did that, but mm-mm-mm. long-suffering. It means to endure discomfort, pain, and anguish without fighting back. We don't do that so good, do we? Most of us don't. A fourth thing, and it really is tied to long-suffering, And it actually is the word forbearance is the correct. It suffers long and is kind. It's forbearance. If any of you have been in a mortgage situation where perhaps something happened, you lost a job, and you call up your mortgage lender on the phone, and you say, I need a forbearance. A forbearance is this. I have a debt. It's a real debt. I owe you the money. I absolutely owe you the money, but I'm asking you, to let me slide for one month, two months, three months, so I can get my life together so that I can take care of my debt. It's the same thing spiritually. God forbears with us. He looks at us and he says, man, you owe me a debt. Why? Because Jesus paid for your life on Calvary's cross. We're now indebted to him for doing that. And because of that, he forbears with us. He doesn't call in the note. He doesn't say, well, you should be perfect right now. And you missed another payment. You went out and sinned again. I can't believe it. Just fry you right on the spot. He forbears with us in our failures, in our weaknesses. Because you know what? I fail. I say things I shouldn't say. I don't have any major sin things that I can think of that the Lord's shown me, but there are times in my thought life I'm not thinking what I should be thinking. I'm thinking the exact wrong thing, and God's forbearing with me. He's suffering long. Oh, Jeff thought that again. I'll help him with it. And sometimes that help comes in the form of chastening. But he forbears. Part of the fruit of the Spirit, you'll notice these things that are mentioned here. The next thing that we could add to this list is to endeavor. I love that word. Think about it this way. It means to apply maximum effort given your ability. Maximum effort given your ability. Not someone else's ability. Because I haven't been called to be Billy Graham. I've been called to be Jeff. My abilities are thus and so. My giftings are thus and so. 
I have certain God-given talents and abilities, and I have some spiritual giftings, wherein I'm supposed to endeavor maximum effort giving my ability. It applies to you. It applies to me. And this is very freeing, because God hasn't called you guys to be me, thank God. One of me is enough for the world. He hasn't called you to be anybody else. He has called you to be you and to do it with everything that you have for his glory. That's all. It's very freeing. You don't have to do the comparison. Well, I can't do this or I can't do that. I used to do this, but now I just can't even do that anymore. I can't tell you how many people walk in that in that conundrum of their mind thinking they ought to be something else when God actually hasn't called you to be anything other than you. Be free in being you. And as we continue this marvelous chapter, as we look at the next verses next week, prepare your hearts to receive these things. Because God wants us to walk worthy of the calling wherein he's called us. He called us at the cross. He's shown us absolutely every measure of grace at the cross. He certainly could not have purchased us because we were a great deal. Amen? Think about it. Some people look at it from that perspective. He didn't call you just simply because you have a certain set of gifts that are the most valuable. He didn't do any of those things. He loved you with an undying love before you ever took your first breath. Before you possessed any gifts of any kind. While you were still in your mother's womb, Jesus said, love him. Going to call him. So, that brings that final little tidbit from the first three verses here. Peace. That bond of peace. You see, when I see myself correctly, and I see others correctly, and I recognize that I need everybody else who's in this world, and strangely enough, y'all need me too. I play my part, you play your part. And as I prefer you more than me, and as we love one another as Christ has loved us, we have this wonderful thing that's the bond of peace. It draws us all together. Why? Because we're all in the same family. We all belong to one another. God's called each of us into that beautiful place. And so I want to encourage you, as you walk this week, as you talk this week, as you think this week, remember who bought you. Remember who paid for your life. Remember who loves you with an undying love. Remember what it is that we've been called to do to glorify God. And remember why it is that he doesn't take us home immediately once we get saved. Because he wants you to show the world what, it likes, what it's like to be one of his kids. Wherever you go, that's really your goal and task as a child of God. Is to live like a little Jesus, so that the world would see him and through him be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, this morning we are so grateful as we think on these wonderful characteristics that are really yours, Jesus, that you've given to us by grace and through faith. 
we pray that you would continue to transform us and cause us to be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. We thank you for the blood of the cross, for taking those stripes that healed us. And Lord, as we live our lives, as we spend our time this week endeavoring with everything that we have, Lord, to give you all. We pray that you would minister to us, that you would minister through us. And Lord, as people bump into us, we pray that they would see Jesus. We love you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.